Miles, here we are. How are you, my friend? Tristan, it's great to be with you discussing another Seahawks game. Miles, what episode is this? What week are we in? I'm, I'm, and I, I'm just throwing this out. I mean, I, I'm struggling. It's all starting to. We're past Thanksgiving. The weeks are starting to kind of blend together. We've been doing this a while, and I know the haters. Oh man! Again, my heart goes out to them because I know it must be driving them nuts. But here we are, still on top. I think this is episode uh, four hundred third, uh, episode twelve. Sorry, is that right? Number twelve. Yeah, this is because uh, Seahawks are six and six. That's, yes. Uh, so I added six and six together. That means that this one's number twelve. Number twelve plus the bonus season of, season of Boom, a uh, baker's episode. dozen of tasty podcasts. Look at that for the people, and this one. So we were talking right before we started recording. This is an interesting one in that big picture. This was a fun game to watch. I think we need to start by acknowledging that. I we so you asked me the question: how how long does a game like this stick with me? How angry do I stay? And and we can get into that because I think it's actually I'm sure there's a lot of people that have problems like me and and have a hard time going to sleep after a game like this. But there were multiple times during this game where I had to remind myself, like, if I'm watching this game in Vegas, if I'm sitting in New York, if I'm watching this game in a bar in L.A., whatever it is around the country, I'm thinking, hey, this is a great game. Like, this is a really good Thursday night game. These Both of these teams are playing really well. Not, not great defense necessarily, but like two high-powered offenses. And I had to kind of remind myself that this was a pretty good game just so I wasn't like super angry. Like, I guess what I'm saying is the antidote to some of my anger after this loss was remembering and having, trying to have at least a little perspective that this was actually a fun game to watch. You got to laugh to keep from crying, huh? I did love the tidbit that they shared, and I love thinking that there's some guy figuring this out in real time. That Amazon put the graphic up there. Fifth game in at least the Super Bowl era to feature zero combined punts. That that is a that's that's a stat right there. That's a great one. I did learn, by the way, in the few days since then, and I know it's been tough. It's been almost a week, and Seahawks Nation has not had a single podcast dissecting this game since this is the world's only Seahawks podcast. But in the days since the fifth ever game with zero punts, I learned the number of the game with the most punts, the most cumulative punts in a game. I want to take a guess on that. Uh, I'll Let me take a guess on the year. Um, and I mean, this is going to be completely random. I can't remember the year. Uh oh. Okay, then I'm not gonna guess. It was the Raiders and Chargers, and I'm gonna guess it was. It looked 2000s ish. Okay. And if the NFL uh, YouTube, NFL Films YouTube, put out a great video about records you don't want to break, and I was loving it. And then this punting one came up: most combined punts, punts by two teams at a game. I mean, it's it's hard to even think about what that high number is. So I'm I'm gonna take a, a total guess. Um, nine punts to like eight punts or something like that. I, I have no idea. It was 27. <gasps> Whoa. And I'm 90% sure on that number. It was definitely 20. It, it was over 20 though. So sure. e- One, that's for sure. 
Each team punted over 10 times. That's, that's incredible. That's a punt every couple minutes. I mean, yeah, that's not a record. And I will say, so to your point, uh, a game with no punts, very entertaining. I mean, it goes back to the big picture. It was a good game. It was a fun game to watch. Can you believe the fifth time ever of all the shootouts, you know, in history, this isn't the first shootout there's been. Fifth one with no punts. I love that. Um, I Now, here, this would be a dorky stat for us to have, which I'm sure we don't. Um, I certainly don't. But I, I would be curious to know how many, like, massive PI calls were in that game with all those punts. Because I will say there there's probably a few opportunities where we would have seen punts, except for at the last minute, the refs decided to throw a, a PI call or two or, or defensive holding that kind of kept this game moving offensively. I, I I think we both agree there was quite a bit of laundry out on the field. And, um, you know, I, I haven't thought about it until now, but certainly that does affect the, the reason why there was no punts in this game. I mean, this was a very offensive-centric refereeing squad, I would say. And I, and I mean that both ways. I, I think they were calling it pretty offensive happy or offensive uh, slanted. Wow, when you put it like that, would you rather see a pass interference or a punt? Maybe this was a refereeing conspiracy, anti-punting conspiracy. They probably have it in their quotas, and so they probably all got a bonus if they could have officiated a game with no punting. People think it's favoring one team or the other. Get those punters out of here. Or they all had like some super weird bet. All the refs had a super weird bet. And so it was like third and 10. They're like, all right, hey, if if this is an incomplete pass, it's a, it is a pass interference. Like we, we are not. I have my literally have my entire house wagered on this at the MGM Grand tonight. I we will not lose this. Um, it could it could be. Um, so I'll say that. that that my big takeaway. It was a fun game. It was an entertaining game. Um, but I did do some pretty crazy research, Miles, for this podcast in preparation. And I, I interviewed someone because I was curious. <clears throat> you know, I, one thing that it was, was unmistakable to me was how incredibly annoying Dak Prescott, Prescott's cadence is. Hey, here we go. Over and over again. We all heard that terrible cadence. I didn't cadence. notice that. Just hey. Here we go. That's that is he sounds like the cookie monster. Dak Prescott sounds like the cookie monster incarnate on the football field. And so I actually I interviewed Dak's mom because I thought, hey, I should go to the person that loves him the most. Right. Loves him with with absolute no matter what you do. I'm, I'm always going to have your back. You're my son. I was like, I should ask this one person. Hey, what do you think about Dak's cadence? And, you know, does it annoy you as much as it annoys everyone else on the face of the planet? And it turns out it does. It turns out that Dak's cadence is just as annoying to his mother as it is to everybody else. And she said that with the, you know, full, hey, I love him. He's my son. I would do anything for him. He's a great kid. He's great in the community, you know, all of the things. And yet, man, I bet you I bet you he's been annoying people with that freaking cadence since high school. I would love to know how he decided that he was going to become the cookie monster every single Sunday. But he he does. And it 
It was terrible. It's the only really bad thing about the entire game was Dak's terrible cadence. And I'm, I'm happy to say it one more time for you if it's helpful. Yeah, I forget what it sounded like. Yeah, here we go. That's it. Not 10, think, not, you, not blue 82. Just like there's so many different things you could say. Do you think it's hurting his MVP case? It's a little um, frustrating to, for, to dig back into the footage maybe. How's the footage? How are the mics picking him up so well? Where are these incredible. microphones? Yeah, it's it's incredible. Um, I don't know, but we could do with a few less microphones. And so, if Dak is listening, I would like to say, Dak, if if you're listening to the podcast, I did I did not actually interview your mom. Um, I don't have her phone number. Um, I'm sure she's a lovely lady, but she she did not. Tell, I'm assuming though that she hates your cadence as much as everybody else, but I don't know that. So it was a joke. It's a bit. I just don't want you. I What I don't want is to affect Dak Prescott long term, you know, where now he's thinking my mother literally hates the way my voice sounds on the football field. Um, you know, that's I don't want that kind of mojo. I want to do the right thing. We're all humans. We're all trying to do our best. But man, it's horrid. I've got an idea to uh, resolve this whole situation. Campbell's soup commercial traditionally Ooh. featuring NFL mothers and their football playing sons she's getting the ladle in the pot and and then she gives here we go actually would be pretty funny that's that's a good idea you should send that into campbell see if uh see if they're looking for anything or if if sesame street is looking for some sort of a collab between dak and cookie monster i think there's something there excellent (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So that's it. That's it for the podcast, folks. Um, we've we've handled all the big. Wait, did you have anything else to any other notes? Miles? I have. A, I have. I look like a madman with this sheet of paper and how many different uh, numbers I've got written on. And I can't wait to get to these numbers. I got some numbers about DK Metcalf. You want to hear those? Oh, my gosh. I absolutely do. Uh, I thought DK Metcalf, uh, my my. Newsboy, 1920s newsboy cap is once again, I'm holding it aloft in the air. Hats completely off to DK Metcalf. Continues to play absolutely inspired football. Probably the best single offensive game performance of any Seahawk in any game this year. I got the numbers. Eight targets, six catches. All six went for first downs. 134 total yards. Three touchdowns. A lot of yards after the catch on that very first that very first one, beautiful, 69 total yards after the catch. That is a career high. I saw at least one broken tackle as well. Continues to be aggressive with the ball in his hands. And I just love the attitude. I know in NFL history, you might think of Deshaun Jackson. It's And Marshawn did this too. It's it's tempting to walk or, you know, run or just kind of when you when you're that far away from the defender to kind of slow down a little bit. I like that he flipped the script and just continued to accelerate and just accelerated all the way through. I thought it I thought it was a great like flip of like I actually thought it was more disrespectful of like I'm not going to look anywhere. I'm going to sprint all the way through this. I thought it was great understanding of where the Seahawks are in the season, you know. They've been on a tough stretch. It was a first quarter touchdown. They 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 needed a lot more than that one touchdown to get the job done. And I liked I liked the spirit of him sprinting through the end zone. Did you have a, a strong take on his uh, sprint, full field sprint? 
You know, I kind of did, to be honest. It's funny you should mention it. My takeaway, I couldn't agree with you more. And my takeaway is that it's almost in DK, because DK is so fast. I think that it's almost like your point. It's almost more disrespectful and more of a burn because it's like, I'm going to show everyone how fast I am. And like, by the time I get to the end zone, you're going to be like 15 or 20 yards behind me. Like you cannot, you cannot physically, there's not a person on the planet that could keep up with me right now. And I feel like that's kind of the flex that DK's doing. It's like, no man, like you're, I'm Michael Johnson right now. You're, you cannot catch me. I'm going to fly down this field. So no, I, I love that. And, and I mean, watching DK at full speed is something really cool. Like you don't, there's so few opportunities you'd think watching a wide receiver, you'd see it all the time. Guys running full speed down the field. You don't always get a chance to see it. And watching DK at full speed is something to behold. I mean, he's, those legs are powerful. I mean, they are chugging along. It's pretty, pretty cool. I thought it was great because there's the cover. Well, it's like, I like, cause like, oh, I was just finishing out the play. Oh, look behind me. Oh, oh, you're 25 yards behind me. Oh, sorry. I was I was just finishing off the play. I wasn't really looking at that. You know, I was just... Uh, <laughs> sorry, man. Anyway. I, I, I knew you weren't going to catch me anyway. So, yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I, I also... I have another take, by the way, on another DK catch, but I don't want to step on your DK. Oh, no, no, no. Let, let, let's... Because I, 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 I got things to say about all three wide receivers. So, let, let's go Let's go DK. So, um, the, the sideline catch that he made, I mean, that beautiful, um, oh, kind of over the shoulder, it was, I think to the left sideline, um, really, really big completion as well. I I'm trying to remember, I think it was in the second quarter. Um, the, the play itself, if you remember DK catches it on the sideline and Bobby Wagner is right there to give him a high five. Like Bobby was stoked about it. And it was one of those where, you just talk about the swagger DK caught the ball, went through the motion and then just kind of walked, like just started walking back to the huddle. And I don't even know how to describe it. There's something in the way that DK walked back to the huddle. That was just cool. It was just like, yeah, like I'm the man, like I'm, I'm better than you. Like there's when DK's in his moment, when he's in that, like, prideful, I'm the best out here moment. It really is. He's, he's one of one when he's like, when he's having one of those games. And and that was obviously the game he had. I mean, he, he was uncoverable. I, my favorite thing of all the stats that you just spit out, my favorite is that all of those receptions were for, were um, for first downs. That's incredible. Like that's talk about making an impact. Like talk about keeping your team on the field. He's converting on all of those for first downs. That's that's incredible. Yeah, he whether he's walking walking at his slowest speed or running at his fastest speed. Th- this is at least a month now of of he's playing he's playing an inspired game every single time out there. I also really appreciated Jackson Smith and Jigba's game. I thought this one was another big step for him. 11 targets, 7 catches for 62 yards. That's not a huge number, but uh, four of those were conversions on third down. Four of his, so he had three catches that converted on third downs, and he drew one pass interference on Stephon Gilmore as well. So he helped convert four third downs into first downs. That's huge too. Now there was also Tyler Lockett, who I, I, you know, there was a point in this season where I, I was disappointed in what DK was doing. I said DK was getting 
some easy yards early in drives, early in the game. It wasn't really helping the team win. That has that has completely turned around now. My uh, my newsboy cap is still held aloft. Tyler Lockett, I think, had a really tough game. Uh, so while well, there was the the huge drop in the fourth quarter, and then he also had a target to him that was picked off. But so so his 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 final stats weren't that weren't bad. Eight targets for five catches and forty seven yards. But there's a few trends going on now that I'm a little bit concerned about. So. Seahawks played five games in the month of November. Uh, Seattle quarterbacks threw four interceptions. Geno threw three of them. Drew Locke threw one of them. All four of those interceptions were targets to Tyler Lockett. Um, so, and, th- and that's a lot. So, Pro Football Focus started tracking this, are you intercepted on a target to you? They started tracking that in 2018. So, in the previous five seasons... 2018 to 2022, Tyler Lockett was intercepted on 10 total targets. It was 10 times. So that's two per year. So he's had four in the last month. So this is like off the charts. Something's happening. So a few weeks ago, I asked a question because it seemed like there was a, an opportunity for, t- for a battle to be had at the catch point. So I did something dangerous. I looked back at the film. Uh, dangerous for me to do. Not. Really. I looked back at the film of all four of these interceptions. First one was in the Ravens game. And it was a bizarre play where uh, it was early in the game. It wasn't a blowout yet. Gino was changing the play at the side. Uh, at the, Gino was under center changing the play. And you could see Tyler. He's out wide. And he's kind of got his arms up like, I can't hear what, the, what you're changing it to. What are we doing? And I remember seeing that and being like, well. Hope Gino doesn't throw it to Tyler. And then immediately, like, boom. So that was a miscommunication. That one, that one's not on Tyler. I don't know who it's on. But the other three picks, they were – it's not – the other three – that's three picks now in four games where there was a battle to be had at the catch point. And Tyler's 0 for 3 on those, on those battles. Uh, well, I guess not. I haven't gone through all of his catches. So, but there's three times where, at the very least, I would say there was an opportunity for him to go defender and knock it away, and it didn't happen. But I think what's more, and it, what I realized, I, what I was thinking, if I noticed that, I think the 49ers, when they have all week to break this down and they're doing it for 100 hours, you know, I think they're noticing that as well. That on these 50 50 balls, you can go in there and take it from them. And I think given, I think that would, I think Gino's aware of it too. I think Shane's aware of it. And I think it would make you nervous of going, hey, there's, there's, you can't, there's specific moments you have to throw it to Tyler. You, you can't really, you know, it's, if you do a 50-50 ball, that's not even up high, you know, there's a little bit of risk there. So also, I was just more concerned about like a lack of physicality in Tyler's game overall. So for the season, he's averaging 2.6 yards after the catch. Pro Football, uh, Pro Football Reference has 143 qualified pass catchers in the league. That ranks 129th. And he's got zero broken tackles on the year. So he's 129th. Seattle, and I looked at this before Sunday's game, so these might have changed a little bit. But um, Seattle had four players in the top 50. Zach Charbonnet, Jackson Smith and Jigba, Noah Fant, and DK Metcalf had crept up into there. Uh, we're all t- so four. Each team should have one and a half guys in the top fifty, right? There's 32 teams in 50 spots, so for the Seahawks to have four guys 
in the top 50. You know, it was, it was disappointing to see Tyler almost at the very bottom of that list. And I, I think, you know, similar to DK's game at, at, at a point in October where he hadn't br- broken many tackles, I, I think there's an opportunity for Tyler to contribute more to winning by being more physical. Is that fair? It's, no, I, I think it, I think it is fair. I, I think one interesting thing about Tyler is the stage he's at in his career, because you talk about lack of, of yak for him. And that's absolutely true. And it's something in some ways I almost celebrate about his game. I shouldn't, I guess, but you see Tyler all the time, make the catch and then dive. Like he'll, he'll just kind of do a little kind of slip and slide for, you know, the two yards and just be done with it. And I take that as, and I, I'm sure this is what he's doing. Like, I'm not going to take this hit. Like I'm going to protect my body so that I'm available, you know, for the next play and for the next play. And so I think that Tyler from, from the yak perspective, I think it's very um, intentional. I think he's doing that in a way to keep his body fresh and be able to be available. Now, to your point, there's a, a major cost to that, right? There's a, there's a yardage cost um, that, that could flip games. So it's, it's a very interesting, interesting point. The, the interceptions are, I would love, it would be great. Neither of us are, are expert enough to be able to sit down and look at those interceptions and, and, and make a, a good statement on like who's to blame and like what the wide receiver should have done. I was just watching the interception in this game again. And I will say when I watched it the first time, my takeaway was Tyler, come on, bro. We need you. And then I watched it the second time. And I I have to say that 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 defender, I think it's bland. He really does high point the ball before it gets to Tyler. Like I, I get what you're saying. I would love to see him get his hand in there and just knock it away or do something. The last thing I said when I saw that replay though, for the second or third time was, man, that was a really good interception. Like, man, that, that one was impressive. Um, so it's funny. I'm not disagreeing with you. I'll say the same thing that I said last time we had this conversation. I think it was during that Ravens game, which is that I, I feel as though Tyler is above reproach. Like I don't, I do not feel comfortable even questioning him. And that mer- that might not be the right approach. I don't know. I don't know if I'm, if, if I'm doing that right or not. Um, just cause he's been doing it for so long, but I, I do think, and maybe if I was to, to dig deep into your analysis, I, I guess maybe what I would say is to your point, I think it's a Gino thing. I think Gino needs to know the strengths of all his wide receivers and pick and choose when he throws to them, depending on the situation. It seems to me that the, the job of quarterback is so insanely hard. I don't know if it's even fair to ask someone to do that in the moment. Like, Oh, yeah, I would throw it if that was, you know, DK, but it's Tyler. So I'm not going to like I, the more I watch the NFL, the more I'm just blown away by how hard it is to play quarterback. So I don't know if that's a decision he needs to make or not. Um, I know I love Tyler. I know he's a great player. Um, I think it's a, but I think it's a really, it'll be an interesting thing to continue to watch through the rest of this year. Cause to your point, we're about to play the 49ers and you're wait, you're telling me they haven't called you about this analysis yet. I figured that they were kind of talking to you to get there to do their um their prep work and whatnot. But you're saying that they do that on their own. They they have that in-house now. They're not outsourcing to you. 
Well, I have, I have, you know, I write it out and I, you know, I put it in the envelope and I mail it to the facility to just say, hey, I've, I've been watching the Seahawks every, every game. I haven't missed a game, you know, I, and uh, I don't know why I'm doing that. I'd prefer for the Seahawks to win the game, but the 49ers do have my analysis uh, in their mailbox if, if they're interested. Um, well, I wish you weren't doing that, Miles, but I mean, I fair enough. Stop. Yeah, no, fair enough. Um, no, you know, I like all that though. I, I, I like the, the DK, the JSN, the, the, the Tyler, I, they all had, um, different impacts. I will say though, of all the things you just said, the fact that, so you're saying yards after catch DK, JSN, Charbonnet, Noah Fant, and, and Noah Fant are all top 50 in the league. That's That is correct. That is, I mean, talk about a. <laughs> Talk about explosive offense. I mean, that's it goes to show why we're in these games against the the you know the Cowboys and whatnot. I mean, that's that's really impressive. Here's my here's why I think the rubber meets the road with these issues I'm talking about. Because you're right, it, it's things are happening so fast. There's not a quarterback in human history who could determine like, well, I would yeah, I would throw that if it was a different receiver, but uh, this guy you know isn't quite as tall at the catch point. Uh, my prediction is that JSN from and it was the the case in this game where JSN had eleven targets to Tyler's eight. I think JSN will actually be number two, if not number one, in targets going forward with Tyler moving down to number three. And another feature that's unfair, <laughs> the the moment where I really thought about catch point the most in my life, and and although this is me analyzing a play, it's one of the most analyzed plays in football history. So I, I think. <laughs> I think we all kind of came to the same conclusion. Not Tyler Lockett, but Ricardo Lockett. Very, very you're looking at a pretty similar last name uh, at a certain play at the end of a certain Super Bowl. You might remember it. Uh, people wondered about the play call. I also kind of thought there was, you know, um, there could have been a little a bigger attack at the catch point as well uh, when the Butler did it. Yeah, either either mine or nobody's, right? Kind of that mentality, which you would think in that game of all games, that would be the the mentality of it as well. Like it, it has to be me or no one, but it's so, tough. So so it could be, you know, of all the teams and all the rare last names in the world, I'm looking at a virtually identical last name out there on the same Seahawks jersey, you know, so that might be a little bit of bias going against it, but. You know, speaking of Ricardo Lockett, I remember his last game very vividly. And it's um, one of the rawest moments I've ever seen on a football field. Uh, So one of his last plays, I'm trying to remember exactly how it goes down. But long story short, he gets hit in the end zone. He lands funny and his body goes limp. I mean, he hits the ground and um one of his teammates comes up, comes running up and, and like tries to help him up. And I mean, Ricardo's body is limp and he he the the teammate kind of goes to, to grab him a little bit, like to help him up um, without Ricardo, you know, reciprocating because he's he cannot move his body in this moment. And it, it was one of the reason was one of the most raw moments I've ever seen in a football game was the trainer comes running into the scene and like pushes the Seahawk. And I don't even remember who it was, but like pushes the teammate who's just trying to help his buddy up, but like has the sense in the moment to realize 
this is a neck injury. Like we cannot touch this guy right now. And like literally shoves the Seahawk and is screaming at him. Like, don't, don't touch this guy right now. They, this is actually kind of crazy. They had just, in fact, in fact, I believe this game that I'm talking about right now with Ricardo Lockett was against the Cowboys. Funny enough. Um, they, and I, I think that's true because I think the palace had just been built and it had some really like kind of cutting edge, um, technologies around. So long story short though, they had their, um, kind of this new fangled neck brace. That's like a pump up neck brace that they use. And then I believe they even had this new technology for Ricardo where they, it was like a, a, co- a cooling, almost like a freezing material that they were able to put into his spine in the moment to kind of stop everything, just to kind of calm the area down really quickly. They said, though, that Ricardo Lockett's injury to his neck was such that if, if he would have been lifted up, if someone would have helped him up, he would have drowned because his, um, or, or I'm sorry, suffocated because his muscles... I don't know if his muscles were severed, but that his muscles in his neck were so injured that he wouldn't have been able to support his neck enough to keep his airways open. So in other words, if they would have let, yanked him up, he just would have kind of gone back and it would have collapsed his airwave. So, I mean, Ricardo Lockett is one uh, blessed hombre that, you know, just in the moment they had the exact medical people there at the exact time. And obviously it was his last football game, but, you know, he was able to make a full recovery and, and, you know, he's, he can walk and talk and, you know, do all the things. So anyway, very, I'm sorry, very, very, very random story, but you, you, you made me think of Ricardo and I'm almost positive that it was a Dallas game. It was a really quite a moment. Um, I do, I do faintly remember that November 1st, 2015, in Dallas, it was in um, Dallas. Okay, Ricardo only twenty nine years old, and yeah, that was that was the very end of his career right there. But yes, you're right; he is fully. I mean, Wikipedia is telling me that he dated singer Carrie Hilson from 2017 to 2020. Probably not that same evening, though. I don't think he went on a date. Just no, to be that clear, was, that was two years later. Yeah, I think he he was he went to the ICU. Um. Uh. Okay. Listen. Enough right, of this silliness. So, so on on Friday, I wrote I wrote down I was still I was still still had a bee in my bonnet about it. The refereeing in this game, it is funny. A few days later, the heat behind it's a little bit off. But I was frustrated. There's a lot of calls that seemed off, but I I was frustrated at two procedural moments that baffled me, and I'll, I'll just go through it. The first one was the shenanigans with the field goal. At the end of the first quarter, referees move the ball. Don't reset the play clock. Don't allow Pete to call timeout. Seahawks get the delay of game. Move the ball back. Myers misses the field goal. I mean, it was just, it was, it it was bizarre, right? I mean, it was, you could tell that when, that when the delay of game flag went, that Pete was, it, it, you could really see that Pete had a real gripe. It was different from like, a, I'm yelling at the refs. It was like, no, this was wrong. You know what I mean? Yep. And he mentioned that in his press conference. Like he basically said, yep, they admitted it was their fault, which yes, I I will say this just quickly on that play. I I have to put the the onus on Pete though. Like I really do. Like there you well, you you have to get I I'll keep going. Yeah, keep going. 
Well, okay. So you want to say, hey, make sure you get the timeout called, right? You got to figure it out. Like you just, you have to. There has well, to okay. be a way. The other play that frustrated me, and you know what? It, I knew when I wrote this down in my note here that it didn't matter to the result of the game, but I still don't <laughs> to write it down. So, and now it feels even less important. But Seahawks are trying to drive at the end of the half. There's very few seconds left on the clock. There's seven seconds left. Boom. Touchdown goes into Noah Fant. I'm excited. I see a tight end get a red zone target. It works. I'm thinking I'm a strategy genius over here. And then all of a sudden it's like, no, Cowboys called the timeout. So I read before the play started. So the play never happened. So the play, this does not matter because after the timeout, boom, another touchdown right into DK. Um, So it doesn't, it ultimately doesn't, but to me, this was a colossal missed call. I was so frustrated. I I went back and watched it. One, Mike McCarthy is walking over to the official. He's he's not like as you're saying. He's not doing everything he can to like get the timeout in like you would want. You know, Pete to do with the field goal. And then the they don't blow. You do not hear a whistle until the ball is in Noah Fant's hands. So here's what here's the sequence that happens. Mike McCarthy calls timeout. Ball is snapped back to Gino. Routes are run. Gino looks around, throws the ball. Fant catches it. Boom. There's the whistle to call a timeout to let you know that, by the way, this play never officially happened. It was that was so frustrating to me. And it there were obviously a lot of of flags you could disagree with and non-calls you could disagree with. Um, but to me, that one was a really baffling one of like we we let a few seconds go by before blowing the whistle here and it seemed like if they gave McCarthy that timeout so easily, they could have given Pete the other timeout as well. Agreed. No, agreed. Yeah, it's look. Listen, I mean, all in all, the 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 officiating was really rough in this game. And I I think I mean even if you just listen to Al Michaels bemoaning the fact that he has this job um, the entire game, uh, which is pretty funny hearing Al Michaels complain almost throughout an entire game. It seems like. But he would over and over. He's like, ah, here we go again. Up, oh, wouldn't you know? He, yep, another flag. Like you could tell it was getting on Al's nerves as well. Um, it'd be interesting to know the grade of this crew, like in general, and and how they did in this game because it does just seem like. And I wonder if it's if it has to do with the head referee or if it's just the culmination of certain individuals where it just does seem like this was an offensive happy team and a team that just was going to call everything rough on defense. Even that very first pass interference on Tariq Woolen, um, where he kind of goes over the top a little bit. I watched that a few times and like he, Tariq is like pointing to himself, like taking responsibility. I, I kind of disagree. Like I, I don't feel like he uh, moved or like dictated the body position of the wide receiver. I don't feel like he grabbed onto him too much. He jumps over the dude and deflects the ball. Um, I mean, for me, me and Herb Street both agreed that it was not P.I. Um, I, I think that the league really does. And, and this shouldn't be a Seahawk take. This should be an NFL take. Everything can't be PI down the field. Like we need to give them other options like, Hey, this PI is going to be 50 yard penalty. And this one's going to be a 15 or a 10 or something like there has to be a differentiation because it just doesn't make any sense. Giving these offenses 50 or 60 yards at a clip 
Um, I, I would much prefer the way that that college does it. And and maybe if it's a super long um, penalty, you know, if it would have been a 60 yard PI, maybe that should be like a 25 yard penalty or something like that. So it's still significant and it still hurts the defense. But these long PI calls, man, I, I don't know. They're I feel like you're not there. They're you're not getting the real flavor for the game. I don't know if that makes sense. And I hope it doesn't. I don't want it to be an excuse making session because I feel as though every team in the league should feel this way. Like I, I feel as though Dallas should feel the same way. It's like, yeah, I mean, it seems weird to like give someone 60 or 70 yards based off of a PI. I got it. If you get ejected from the game for a personal foul that's like ejection worthy, that's 15 yards. If you so, punched if you punched a baby on the field, if you brought a baby onto the 50-yard line and punched it in the nose, you'd be ejected and it'd be a 15-yard penalty. <laughs> I mean, you know, just to just to kind of put it in perspective, the most we can do personal foul-wise is a 15-yard penalty. If you punched a ref, it would be a 15-yard penalty, which thank God we don't see. They don't do that. But like yeah, it is kind of funny to think about. But now we have this one play that like could be up to 100 yards if it, if it you know, if you want it to be. Like you could yeah. have a 100-yard yeah, yeah, penalty yeah. on PI. And it's a little bump. It's also, Ultimately, it's a bump and it's, you know, legislating this. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, another uh, one that I was thinking about, sorry, this is a bit off topic, but I was thinking about how idiotic the idea of intentional grounding is. Like just, have we talked about this yet? Even just the name intentional grounding, like the the name of the rule is saying we are going to surmise this individual's intent which is like the most impossible thing to do in the world right like i mean in any court of law in any in any moment right like if 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 you say something rude to me and and i say miles that really hurt my feeling all you have to do is be like, oh, I didn't intend it that way, man. I'm sorry. Like, that wasn't my intention. The idea that we have a rule called intentional grounding that gives the idea that we are going to surmise the intent in the in the brain and the heart of the quarterback if they were actually trying to get rid of the ball or not. Like, on its face, it's the dumbest rule ever. Like, th- there has to be a better way to figure out if it was grounding or not versus like trying to like surmise someone's intentions like in a competitive moment you know like was it your intent to give yourself an advantage no it i'm sure it wasn't that's my intentional grounding rant it doesn't make wow. any sense I, i've never had a problem with that one i, I, I do agree that any pass interference should be just 15 yards I, I, and i think you're right that's you know yeah you're right that this isn't uh uh, just a Seahawks thing, although it has been lately, but uh, yeah. Well, and I will say every team should want that for, for people out there that are saying Tristan is, is being a Homer to, to, to their point, And I think it is like Pete has always coached his team to like play to the very edge. And like the Legion of boom did that. Like he would talk about, like, they're not going to call everyone. So like, just keep being aggressive and eventually, you know, we'll end up on top. So I will say that we as a team have a tendency to like play on the bleeding edge of competition, which um, if I if I was to try to shoot a hole in my own argument, it would be that like we, you know, Richard Sherman had plenty of borderline moments where it probably should have been interference, but it, it didn't get called. You know, I will say l- last one. I'm sorry. Last one. 
the PI against Bobby Wagner was the dumbest PI ever. Like that tiny okay. little, and that was a third down. Uh, that one, that one annoyed me. And I thought to myself while I was watching it, it, does it feel weird to call PI on someone that you know, like as a certainty is a future Hall of Famer? Like, you know that this guy's going into the football Hall of Fame, like in a couple of years, and you're going to call PI on him. Like, I, I wouldn't do it. So anyway, I'm sorry. I'm done. I won't say another word about pass interference. Now, you know what? Well, here, here's what I meant to say to, to lead off the refereeing thing, because uh, I know listening to refereeing when your team here, your team lost. What's the podcast about? The referees were bad. Oh, great. great. <laughs> but, here, here's two smart young men talking about things. <laughs> I've got a new take. Get this. I thought the refereeing was bad. But um, <laughs> in fairness to us, this is the first time it came up all year. And 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 I think there was a feeling since the nation was was watching this on Thursday night. I, I think there's just a general feeling that uh it was tough out there. Yeah, no, I it was agree. interfering with the fifth game with no punts in NFL or perhaps causing it as we uh discussed. I think I think causing it personally. Um although hey big shout out to Michael Dixon, great punter. And we, we missed seeing you, Michael, and we're sorry we didn't. See, well, we're not sorry we didn't see you, but we think that you're an important member of the team. So shout out to Michael and the, the entire family. Do you um, think it was less work for the special teams coordinators and stuff this week with no, you know, tape? Did, did they go home a little early this week because they didn't have to review any punts? You know, it's like, there's yeah. like it's like, uh, coach, tell the truth. Monday's done. Um, we don't know what to do. Is do, do other departments need our insight on anything? Um, you want to hear some snap counts? Oh, I'd love it. Michael Dixon, 0% snap counts. That, that, that's your snap counts for the day. That's not quite true. Actually, it's not true. He He's a holder, isn't he? Damn it. <laughs> oh, I almost had it. That would have been ah, funny. That would have been good. Okay, snap counts. Um... So there was one in particular that surprised both of us. So we'll, we'll get to that. But we'll start. I always start with Witherspoon. We all love Devin. Let's start there. Spoon, 97% as per usual. Um, Bradford, 97%. As you know, I'm a big Anthony Bradford fan. I like getting that big body out there and moving people. JSN, 67%. It, that seems kind of like his sweet spot he's been at for a while. Uh, Charbonnet, 61%. Um, which almost feels a little light, but he did get hurt in the game. So, so that kind of makes sense. Um, before we get to the defensive line, here was the one that really stood out to me, Jake Bobo, 12%. And the reason it stood out was just the eye test watching the game. I felt like he was on the field. And so he, he clearly wasn't on the field that much in this game. And he did have one or two kind of nice impact plays that, that I think made made it feel like he was on more. And, and as I'm looking at the stats now, I'm realizing it literally was just one. He had one reception for nine yards, um, but that nine yard reception got us, you know, almost got us a first down and the next play we got the first down. So it, it, he it kind of had like that, like, oh yeah, Jake like made an impact. Like he helped, you know, move the, get us a first down, move the ball down the field a little bit. Um, I'm much happier, though, with some of these next numbers. So this is, you know, of course, the defensive line, Leonard Williams, 79%, um, which is better. He was, I believe, at 89% um, the week before. So let's keep getting that number lower and lower. 
Uh, Draymond Jones, 62%. Reed, 76%. Cam Young, 11%. So, you know, shout out to my guy, Cam Young. At least he's getting out there a little bit more. Um, the, the one that is really disappointing, and it continues to be Derek Hall, 4%. So Derek Hall, a guy that I, I really was hoping would have a bigger impact on this team, is clearly kind of regressing. Um, not to say that that pertains to... Um, anything in his future like he's a rookie he's just you know not not doing great right now he probably needs an off season to figure some stuff out um but you know certainly it's a bummer because he he's adonis he has a a perfect prototype um stature to be out there on the edge and so um getting him more involved would would certainly be nice um so yeah the, i mean i don't know if there's anything there that stands out to you more than more than anything else for me certainly it's bradford making an impact i love that um and you know in general it looks like our big guys aren't being out being asked to be out there all the time which um which is good on the defensive line so hopefully keeping those boys fresh i do want to say and i don't know if this makes sense or not but i um actually let me know if you agree I thought that this wasn't a bad defensive game on either side. I think some games just they're they're just a shootout and the momentum of the game just like takes you, you know? Um so I didn't feel like either team played bad defense. It was just like we need this team needs a score. Now this team needs a score. Oh, now the other team needs a score. And sometimes it just happens like that. Am I uh <laughs> It's forty-one thirty-five. I, I thought it was wasn't bad defense. What do you think? Yeah, I you know. So I will say this: um, great defense, but it wasn't. I wasn't feeling like the defense was like losing the game. It felt more like the two offenses were just going out there and grabbing it. Yeah. So I mean, so to your point, so so two things that easy numbers to look at: sacks and tackle for a loss. Right. So the Seahawks had four sacks, which is a respectable amount of sacks in a game. Four is a, a good number, and we had eight tackles for loss. Um, so it, yeah, to your point, it's, it's not as though our defense was inactive. I think they were very active out there. Um, again, you know, not to not to bemoan the the pass interference stuff, but I do think that that the penalties really did highlight for both teams. It kept the offenses on the field, which gave them more opportunities. You know, so in the same way that converting on a key third down is a big deal. If you convert on it in pass interference, and it kind of accomplishes the same thing. It keeps your offense on the field. So, yeah, to your point, I, I don't think either defense looked terrible. Um, certainly, I liked a lot of the activity that we had in the in the backfield. Um, as we're speaking, let me look at this. Yeah, QB hits. We had seven QB hits. I mean, not bad, really. Um, it just, uh, yeah, the, the cookie didn't crumble exactly our way. And, and uh, the Cowboys had one of the statistically best defenses in the league as well. And uh, I thought it was just an impressive off offensive performance from the Seahawks too. Like I don't think the Cowboys should necessarily be concerned about their defense. You know, there's just some games that some of them. I don't know. It really it was occurring to me that there's just a an attitude that each game takes on that you can't know until you get in there. And this one was just like we're going. Yeah, I mean, so to your point. The theoretical perfect game, right? Your team scores 35 points, whatever, and and the defense scores zero. That very rarely happens. Like you, you basically never see that. 
typically when you see low scoring games, both teams don't score a ton and it's a defensive match. And I think that's it, it's to your point. It's because of pacing. You can't you can't have it both ways. Hey, we're going to go up and down the field and score a ton. Well, every time you score, I mean, you know, DK's big touchdowns, great example, you get the touchdown, but you also give them the ball back really fast. Right. So to your point, I mean, it's very rare, if not impossible to have everything in the NFL where you completely dominate a team. Plus you score a ton, a ton of points. You, you kind of have to pick and choose that a little bit. Now, certainly there's, there's outliers. Um, but yeah, the, this, uh, I don't think this was a bad game. This this was a good game. Again, I'll go back to if I'm watching this in Denver, if I'm watching this in, in Buffalo, like this is a fun game. This was a good football game to watch. I went down to the river and I dipped my pan into the silt at the bottom and I found a peat nugget. And uh, I was curious as I was, as the game was happening and the shootout was, and I will say I, I at least... Last week, hey, I thought it would be a shootout. Thought the Hawks would come out on the, the upper end of it, but I I did kind of think that both teams would, would score above thirty points. As the Hawks were on their way to scoring so many points, it was twenty-one to twenty at halftime. I was thinking, boy, I wish I knew that if for as much as NFLs I've watched, I was going. I wish I knew very specifically what was happening strategically. That why this offense that's been sputtering for a month is now just like slinging it against a really good defense in Dallas. And I was wondering what tactical changes were made. Pete was asked about it. And I thought it was kind of funny that he, he didn't name any sort of tactical changes. He went back and he credited the week of practice that they had leading up to the game. And he, he also kind of pointed out that it was a tough week of practice, a, a bad one leading up to the San Francisco game a big reason why he thought the offense did poorly there. And he, he also mentioned, he said something about that along the lines of Shane Waldron was very specific about how he wanted to attack the Cowboys. So maybe that's just Pete, you know, not being, being, uh, you know, he's giving a pretty thorough answer there, but he's also not letting any uh, specific tactical changes out into the public. But I did think it was interesting that he didn't, uh, name any sort of like, oh, we, you know, something like, oh, well, we used JSN more or we, you know, we did this, you know, we wanted to get our tight ends. Like he he just credited the week of practice. And so I was like, oh, maybe there wasn't really a tactical uh, change that I was missing. It was just kind of that that thing you couldn't see the week leading up to it that was uh, helping them. Whatever was going on in the building that week was was really what was like helping lead the offense. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's it's interesting because to your point, I mean, freaking the, the 49ers are so good. Like it's it becomes so difficult to know the truth about your team when you watch these different games. Is it that the Niners are just so good that when we play them here on Sunday, it's going to be the same story? Like they're just going to be dominant or is it going to be a really close game? You know, you just the NFL is so weird. You never quite know. It seems to me that this team is kind of showing itself to be very pr prolific against good defenses, but you know, maybe not great defenses, which I think Dallas is maybe statistically they're better than I better than I think. But um, it, it seems to me like they're, they're a good defense, but not, you know, not one of the elites such as the, the Niners and, and maybe the Niners are one of one in that rating. I, I don't know. 
Um, yeah, it's it's going to be telling. I mean, the next two weeks, if I will say, let's see if let's see if I sound like a moron when I say this. Let's see if this makes any sense. The next two weeks, if we win, it's going to tell us a lot about the Seahawks. And I feel like if we lose, it's not going to tell us much. Like I, I feel as though, and maybe that's just the way I have the cast die right now. That that if if they lose it's going to make a lot of sense the next two weeks. Like, yeah, you know what? Like we're a good team, not a great team. We're facing really good teams. Tough luck, man. Like you should have beat the Rams. You should have beat the Cowboys. You should have won when you had the chance. If they were to win these next two games, man, it would tell us a lot, wouldn't it? I mean, if they come out and beat the Niners, talk, think about what kind of a statement that is. Versus if they lose to the Niners, I think we kind of know how this podcast will go. It's like, yeah, yeah, look, the Niners are really good. <laughs> like, what are we going to do? Um, but you kind of realize from a litmus test perspective, the Niners, the Eagles, I mean, yeah, that's the test in the NFL. If you can pass those two tests, you're going to go pretty far. And 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 frankly, you're going to suddenly become one of the favorites in the NFC, dot, 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 you know, why we play every single week. No, I, I think you're totally right. I, we would learn, it would be a, a, a shocking discovery if they won the next two games. It would be like, yeah. 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 Oh. yeah. I, oh, 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 this is fun. Oh. Um, but I'll take it. Um, so my Pete Nugget came from Friday, um, the Friday press conference. So the the press conference right after the game. And it's very interesting. We've I feel as though we've seen a kaleidoscope of of Pete over the last few weeks or over the season, really, of being discouraged, not knowing what to do or kind of having that vibe during his press conferences. This was not that his press conference on Friday. He was very effusive about how much he liked his team, how they had a great week of practice and they went out and played a really good game. I mean, Pete didn't back away from the fact. Yeah, no, mission accomplished. Like we played a good game. We happened to lose the game, but but like we played a good game. And so one of the reporters asked him a question, um, kind of a basic question, if I'm being honest, but it, but at least it was a direct and blunt question, which I do appreciate. Um, and I don't know, I don't know what reporter it was, but he he specifically said he's like, Hey Pete, you on Brock and Salk show, you talked about how um, when you make the playoffs, you're going to be a really hard team to beat. What makes you think you're going to make the playoffs? And like, it's a very, again, I, I think it's a very basic question, like, uh, but, but it is blunt. So I, I want to give the reporter points for bluntness. And, and it, it occurred to me as I listened to this, that Pete doesn't live in the same time and space continuum that the rest of us do, because Pete's re- reply was, well, look, I don't know how many games we have left. I, I don't know if we have enough games to make the playoffs at this point. But I'm telling you that if this team was to make the playoffs, we'd be really dangerous because like we've gone through the, all the tests. And it's a it's a this is a real interesting Petism here, because if you take a step back, if you give him the benefit of a doubt, you can understand his point. Like his point is. We have gone through a gauntlet of tests and every single like if you put yourself in Pete Carroll's brain, he's saying every single week that we play, we get better. 
And every single week that we lose, we learn something about ourselves and we get better. And every time we lose a close game, we learn something very important and we get better. And so it's funny, I've heard Pete talk this way before, where he's basically like, man, if we only had a couple more weeks this season, like we we would have gone all the way. Like, like Pete believes in his team so much that in his mind, he's like, we just need more time. Like this game wasn't long enough. This season wasn't long enough. We just needed more runway because like we were right on the edge of putting everything together. And so it was kind of funny the way he answered. He's like, listen, I don't know if we're going to make the playoffs or not. I don't know if there's enough time. But if we were to make the playoffs, like we're going to be a tough out, basically. So it it, it was as much of a Peteism and a Pete Nugget as, as I think you can get because no one talks like that. No one thinks that way. Um, it's something I absolutely love about Pete. And I'm I'm going to um listen to his intent when we talk about intentional grounding. I'm gonna I'm gonna listen to Pete's intent on that and to say that he does believe in this team. And he's been very um, effusive about that over the last few weeks, that he does believe in this team. Have they they squandered too many opportunities? We keep talking about the Rams game. It could be that they just have. It could be that there's going to be one game that we look back on and say, if we would have won that, this this whole thing could have been different. Um, But again, if you're Pete Carroll, you're not looking at the 49ers thinking, oh, shucks, I don't think we can win. How are we ever going to do this? Right. Like if you're Pete Carroll, he's saying we're battle tested. Let's go. We can beat the 49ers. And so I'm going to choose to be on Team Pete here. Um, if anything, because being on Team Pete is way more fun than being on any other team. It's way more fun being uh, being Pete Carroll's buddy than anybody else's buddy. So I'm on Pete. Team. I'm on uh, Team Pete. Let's go. Let's, uh, you know. Let's just not worry about time and space as it um, manipulates us mortals. And let's just live on a different plane of consciousness in Pete We Trust. Oh, man. That is the nugget of nuggets. That is so, I mean, wow. Yeah, I think, I mean, you're totally right. I mean, as so as I'm bellyaching about these calls, it, it, it occurred to me at several points and I heard the same thing. I didn't. I didn't realize the space-time implications as you properly did, but uh, it occurred to me that sitting on the outside as we are and kind of evaluating things correctly, quote-unquote, or like smartly or, you know, as an experienced fan would, you have to have a completely different perspective if you're if you're on the inside. You're right. You can't go like, uh, I mean, from the outside, it'd be like, well, Niners, that's pretty tough. Like, you know, from the, but from the inside, you can't think like that. You have to think like this test against the Cowboy, Cowboys made us tougher. And now that has prepared us for the Niners. And you can't just go like we're six and six. We're with a bunch of kind of mediocre teams shuffling in to make the playoffs. And it may or may not have, you know, like it's you're totally right. And, um, you know, I'm belly aching about the Noah Fant thing, which the touch non touchdown, which doesn't matter. And it occurred to me that, you know, even though, you know, Pete's hollering on the sideline for a little bit, but you got to move on. If you're inside the game with, with all these flags happening, you can be annoyed by it for a little bit, but you have to move on. And I thought he, I thought you could see him doing it during the game. And after the, you know, after the game, he was like, Hey, these flags were annoying, but he wasn't, you know, he wasn't pitting the loss on the referees by any means, you know, he, you know, he's, he's crediting the Cowboys for a great win. So, 
Yeah, that's right. He is. Yeah. It, you don't get that experience with with the space time continuum with many head coaches. That's what's so special. Uh, look, there's there's not a lot of seasons. Maybe that uh, you can't be a Super Bowl contender every year, so you might as well be having this uh, experience. I love that's that's the Pete experience, and I think, however, some you know, I'm a little shocked being a little more dialed into Seahawks online chatter. How how quickly we're kind of talking about. Pete's job security after a loss or two, you know, and uh, yeah, it's just, it will really miss him. Whoever you are, if you've been saying that, or if you haven't, and you're like us and you're treasuring all these nuggets, you're going to miss the man when he's gone. And I hope Uh it's not for a long time. And I don't think it will be either. Yeah. A hundred percent. One hundred percent. You don't know what you got until it's gone. And, um, and I will say this well, one last thing, right? From from the outside perspective, we're looking at the 49ers and the Eagles. And we're like, oh boy, this is going to be tough, right? Whenever I think that way, I just think about like if if I was sitting right next to DK Metcalf, right? And I'm like, oh, DK, these guys are so good. Like, what look would he give you? Like, dude, look at me. <laughs> like, I'm DK Metcalf. Like, if you went up to Bobby and you're like, oh, Bobby. This is going to be a tough game, man. I don't know. I'm nervous. Like you'd be like, dude, I'm Bobby Wagner. Are you, have you lost your mind? Like I'm, I'm, I'm literally a Hall of Famer talking to you. We can win these games. It, it does give you a little bit more confidence when you think of the alpha dogs that you have on your team. You know, whether it's Witherspoon or JSN, um, whether it is DK or Jamal Adams or Geno Smith for that matter, when when he's on it. Um, you think about these dudes and it's like, they're not intimidated. Like they're, they're not sitting there. Charles Cross isn't sitting there being like, Oh no, I don't know if I belong. This is going to be that Nick Bosa guy. Like, no, he's like, no, come on. I'm like, I'm an ascending left tackle. Let's go. Abe Lucas is not like worried about um, Chase Young. And like, am I just going to get destroyed? Like Abe Lucas is looking forward to the matchup, you know? So it is kind of funny. It's, it's at least, helpful to think about. And it's, I think one of the reasons why all of us normal people like watching professional athletes, because there is that athletic arrogance and there is that like, no, I'm, I'm really good, man. Like, don't, don't worry. We will figure this out. So again, to your point, as the fan base is belly aching, as I am belly aching, like, man, you really want to win the winnable games because these are going to be tough. They're not thinking that way. Like DK is the best example. DK is not thinking like, oh, I'm scared to face the secondary. They're so good. Like DK Metcalf is like, you know, I look what I just did. I'm going to do it again. So yeah, it's like perspectives, everything. Yeah. They're thinking another Sunday, another game. Are we here? Are we on the road? Like, let's go, you know? And, and by the way, I play college with like all of these dudes. That's what's even funnier. Like many of these dudes, it would be great to know in this matchup, right? Like, oh man, these 49ers are so good. It would be great to know how many times did the Seahawks 53-man roster play the Cow- or uh, the Niners 53-man roster throughout their college career. And then to take it a step further, some of these dudes played high school together. Like, I am sure, I would be shocked if there wasn't a matchup or a few dudes on either team that's like, oh yeah, man, like we played high school. Like, remember junior year? Like, and if, if you think about it from that perspective, it makes it even funnier and more human, you know, like more humanized. We think of these guys as superheroes, which, cause they look like superheroes and they run like superheroes and they do things 
that our bodies can't do. But it is funny to think about like the same guy that we're like worried about the matchup, like Nick Bosa, like DK is like, oh, yeah, like we went to the same summer camp together and like practice football because, you know, whoever put it on, you know, so it is funny. Like they're all just dudes. They, they all know each other and they're all elite. So um, let's go. I'm, I'm talking myself into this game. I'm ready to run through a wall. And at least I don't have to hear the cookie monster give his dumb cadence ever again this year. <laughs> I'm going to watch every Dallas Cowboy game on mute. Uh, speaking of players who have a, a notable uh, perspective on the world, hmm. uh, there's a player that we talked about who's not on the Seahawks anymore, used to be, and we were talking about him a lot when it was a little more fun, uh, perhaps, to talk about him. That is Russell Wilson. He... Played quarterback for the Seahawks for a while. He's now the quarterback for the Denver Broncos. They started the year one and five after trading a lot of draft picks to get Russell Wilson, and uh, it was there was there was an element of comedy to it. To look at the Broncos, one and five, really big contract. I'm listening to very sophisticated cap analysts on other NFL podcasts saying you got to cut Wilson after this year so that his 2025 doesn't guarantee well. The Denver Broncos and the Seattle Seahawks are both at six and six. A few weeks ago on social media, I don't know if you saw this, but Cortland Sutton, Broncos wide receiver, posted an apology form. Uh, you could kind of check one or multiple options as an apology to Russell Wilson. Being a being a member of Seahawks Nation was one of the options. There was other options like I, I don't know what I I don't know football at all. You know uh, things like this. You kind of. Apologize to Russell Wilson. Um, I did watch. They, they played a very thrilling game against the Houston Texans. They lost it this week uh, with Russell throwing three interceptions. Uh, but point is, before that, the Broncos were on a five-game winning streak, longest in the league. And uh, here's my wager uh, with myself. There's, there's nobody else making this, but uh, I'm not ready to apologize yet. And I'll say what I, what I would apologize for. But I, I think Russ deserves an apology from me, and you're welcome to join me or not, but from me on the World's Only Seahawks podcast, if and only if the Broncos finish the season two, at least two wins better than the Seahawks. So they're six and six right now. Uh, it's it's got to be a two-win gap. There were too many draft picks. And what I will apologize for, I'm not apologizing for it right now, but what I will apologize for would be watching the Broncos earlier in the year with a negative spirit and and kind of rooting for a comedic stat line from Wilson, which we, we did get a few of those. Uh, I will apologize for that if the Broncos finish two games better than the Seahawks at the end of the year, which would probably mean the Seahawks are out of the playoffs as well. What I was wrong about at that time, and I'm not apologizing for this, but what I just got wrong is at that moment, I thought the Broncos had kind of the... what a one of the worst kind of outlooks over several years. Um, and that was not true. I, I just, that, that was, I was just wrong about that. The Broncos don't really have a very impressive win along that five game win streak, but they're at least an okay team because a really bad team doesn't take advantage of those opportunities like the Broncos did. So that's my Russell Wilson apology wager. Uh, I don't know. Are you, are you watching the Broncos to see how they're, uh, neck and neck with this this livestock 
one galloping over the field, one flying in the air. They're back and forth. Which one's ahead of the other? Are you Have you been watching it like I have? It is occurring to me that this matchup, the Broncos versus the Texans, I mean, you talk about a very agricultural um, matchup between those two teams, uh, you know, a, a Bronco versus a Bull. Um, so I'm, I'm reading right now for the first time um, the, the apology survey for the, each box. Do you want me to say what each one is? Reasons yeah, for I was, behavior? I was, was kind of going to put my own box of, of watching with a negative spirit. Yeah. It was, ne- it was, so, it so was you, a negative you, you energy, own, a, you a put, clowning put, energy. Put your own in. So, so I'll say this. First of all, I will not be apologizing because <laughs> I don't think I have anything to apologize for. Uh, because I don't think I, I had any bad behavior. I was never rooting against Russell as a person. Um, I was never uh, negative about Russell. I did root against the Broncos last year, uh, very specifically because of the draft pick, right? So I, I wanted us to have the best draft pick possible. I rooted against um, uh, that team in general uh, to ensure us the best draft pick. I personally felt really bad for Russell at the end of last year. Cause it, it must've been so humiliating for him. And, and I mean, I'm not trying to be funny. Like, I mean that sincerely, like it must've been crazy. Like he, he's been at the top of his game forever. And last year was, was really rough. Um, so going into this year, even though, uh, we do have one draft pick that will dictate, you know, depending on how they play, will will dictate its place for us. It's a third round pick. So I'm willing to say, Hey, I don't care if it's, you know, the number 50 pick or the number 67 pick, whatever. Like you guys just go out there and have fun. And I have been rooting for Russell this year because (laughs) because I because I I don't have I have zero ill will for him. Uh, One thing I did want to say about that pick is I've seen some conflicting things that the Broncos actually might in that trade. It might have been a Saints pick. That like the Broncos acquired in a previous trade and then sent- there's actually like conflicting oh. information about if it's the Saints pick or the Bron- the extra third round pick that the Seahawks got last year. It was it was a trade they made with the Broncos last year, with the Broncos moving up in the middle rounds, the Seahawks moving back, but it might be a Saints pick that they traded. Uh, yeah, that makes back, sense. Yeah. So it could actually be that I should be rooting. But it could be the Broncos one for that. I yeah. So I. I hold no ill will uh, for Russell. I think he was great. He was at Children's Hospital every single Tuesday. I love him. I, I wish him nothing and his lovely family the best of luck. But I was rooting for, I was rooting against them last year. I will say this though, and I've said on the podcast, and listen, I don't mean to hurt. It's Christmas season. I don't want to hurt Sean Payton's feelings. And I, and I know Sean will be listening to this podcast. But I am rooting against Sean Payton because he, as we have spoken about before, I think that he's made a fool of himself this year. Some of the things he said, I did not appreciate him throwing Hackett under the bus. Don't talk about other people's business, man. Like, you need to act like an adult. And so, listen, what I would say to Cortland is um, I'm still on Team Hackett because he seems like a nice guy. And even even if maybe, you know, the head coaching gig wasn't the right thing for him at the moment, um, I am happy to say that I am rooting actively for Russell Wilson. And every single week I am rooting actively against Sean Payton. Um, And I don't feel that way about almost anyone in any league. Like I want people to be successful, but I think Sean's made a real ass out of himself. So that's that's my take. Okay. (laughs) 
Okay. I don't think I have. I would only apologize because Cortland asked. It's not something I would do on my own. And I wanted to honor since he asked, you know. Sure, sure. And I didn't want to. I mean, maybe I should just be checking the C, you know, the Seahawks one, you know. There, there is, you know, I bet it was tough for Russell last year. However, it's kind of like sometimes work is tough, you know, and that's yep. all that was happening. That's it's kind of all that was happening for him last year. There is an, and then uh, I think in a uh, there's just a there's an undeniable comedy to the fact that Russell thought the Seahawks were holding him back and asked for a trade, and to finish with a worse record than the Seahawks the first year, there's something very comedic about that. And I for agree. it to happen, as what I was rooting for was just for that to happen a second year in a row, uh, when the draft all like just all, all the draft picks in the trade have been selected, and now and now the draft picks are are real people. They're not just picks, you know. They're really contributing to wins. Well, and I will say I'm, I'm reading the very bottom of this little post from Cortland, um, and it says, "I hereby respect Russell Wilson and will not talk." expletive about the future first ballot hall of famer. I, I will say, I don't think that's correct anymore. I, I, I do think that if, if I'm a hall of fame voter, however that works, that if Russell had retired the year he left Seattle, like if, if for whatever reason he decided, no, I'm done playing football. I, I don't want to play for the Broncos for some weird reason. I think that he's, I think he is in the hall of fame, maybe not first ballot, but I think he's in the hall of fame. Last year was really like I don't know if there's a precedent for Hall of Fame players having that bad of a season. And I know he's had some good games this year, but I will say just, you know, talking about recent memory and and making decisions on the margin, his stat line. um, And again, I wish Russell nothing but the best in his life and happiness. His stat line, 15 for 26, 186 yards, one touchdown, three interceptions. Um, he did run the ball 10 times for 44 yards, so that's good. But I mean, CJ Stroud certainly outplayed him in this game. So I, I don't know. Like, I, I don't, those don't sound like Hall of Fame numbers to me. And I know he's had some good games this year. I'm not saying he hasn't. Um, I hope he gets in the Hall of Fame. But I, I would say that, again, with all due respect to Cortland, maybe slow your roll just a little bit because, first of all, we're talking about a short sample size. We're also talking about a QB who is the QB of a 500 team right now that's coming off of a three interception game. So I, yeah, I, I don't know when he um, released this. I'm assuming he didn't release it this week, huh? Because this, this is definitely not the hall of fame ballot uh, performance we'd be looking for from Russell. If I'm Cortland Sutton. Uh, Yeah. I just wanted, I just wanted to, to, you know, be honest about, you know, we, we, we talked about him a lot when there was a slam dunk that the Seahawks were going to finish with a better record than them this year. And that slam dunk is, uh, you know, it's, it's clattering around the rim at, at this point. It is. It is. I, I'm sorry. Can I just say one more quick now that Cortland has me doing my own research and thinking last week, Russell's stat line is 13 for 22 for 134 yards and a touchdown. I mean, we're not talking about Tom Brady here. Like, uh, like again, like, I, like, let's just like numbers don't lie. I'm just looking at the last two weeks. It's not as though like, and they won that game by the way, and, and wins are important. And I would have been totally happy with that game as a as a Russ fan in Seattle. But um, yeah, the, I guess 
I'm just reading that Hall of Fame line and and I it doesn't uh don't think it's correct. So sorry, sorry, Cortland. I do think you're a great football player and Merry Christmas. That's enough about football in, in the 2020s for the moment. We yeah. got to go back to the 1960s. I'm continuing my slow, I'm uh, very much enjoying my march through When Pride Still Mattered by David Baroness, the yep. biography of Vince Lombardi. I was looking at uh, the Packers history and something really astonished me about the passage of time. Now, so, I will say, but before you get into this, yeah. that now we're talking about an era where throwing for 134 yards would get you into the Hall of Fame because those are the kind of stats that would just blow their minds back then. Just not the case, you know, in, in 2023 where we're a little bit more sophisticated. Sorry. Go ahead. Keep going. Uh, so so Lomb- I'm getting to the end of Lombardi's time in Green Bay. Uh, so that was 1967. We can all picture Mike Holmgren. He was, he was around. Lombardi's from the black and white days. Holmgren, he was just around pretty recently. So there were 20, there was only 25 years that went by between the end of Lombardi and the start of Mike Holmgren. 1967 and 1992. But that means that the start of Mike Holmgren to now is a longer chunk of time. That's 29 years. I, I don't know. Just that kind of like oh, that this chunk of time as long. It always gets me. Yeah. Mess with your mind. That's crazy. Um, all right. So it's October, 1966 and the Packers have just played the Atlanta Falcons, which to me felt wrong. It feels like Vince Lombardi didn't exist at the time. The Falcons still feel new to me, I guess. Uh, but they, they Vince Lombardi played the Falcons. That was their first year. There was a bit of a controversy that erupted uh, between Lombardi and the press. Lombardi was very angry about a certain story that they broke. Uh, this, this is in the this is in the football was way different back then category, and I got one that hey maybe football hasn't changed very much at all. But this is way different. Lombardi was really mad at this story that they broke about one of his players, and the story that they broke in the middle of the season, the press discovered this was that uh, one of their star players, his contract was up and he was going to be a free agent at the end of the year. That just wasn't publicly available knowledge. You definitely didn't have spreadsheets breaking down each year and the signing bonuses and the roster bonuses by the dollar. The Packers fans went through half the regular season without knowing that their star running back, uh, Jim Taylor, was a free agent at the end of the year and he could have you know, that he had the option to leave. And you just, you just didn't know. That's so funny. That's such a, I mean, yeah. Talk about just a different time. Like now we have to know everything about every negotiation. Where will Shohei sign for? How much will it be? How many years? And during that time, it's like, you can almost imagine like an average fan being like, oh, yeah, that's weird. Is he not going to be on the Packers next year? Like, what's what's going on? Well, I got a job to do, so I'm just going to go back to my work. Like, you know, this, this isn't an obsession for me. Like, this is just something I do on the weekends. I watch football. Well, it's also funny that Vince was, like, really mad. He, he would get into fights with the press. It was, it was just kind of funny to be like, hey, I was trying to keep that. Like, I knew that. I was just trying to keep it, you know, uh, to myself. Um, anyway, so. That was, wow, what a different game. Hardly recognizable. Here's something. Hey, it's the same game. It's 11 guys and a ball out there, you know. Question, hypothetical. Uh, What do Vince Lombardi and pro football focus have in common? 
And the answer is they use virtually the same grading system to grade players snap by snap. So what Lombardi would do is he would give either a zero, a one, or a two to each player on every snap. And pro football focus, they go negative two to positive two, and they'll also do point fives. So they'll go 0.5, 1, 1.5, 2, and also in the negatives. So uh, that's virtually the same idea of how to grade and then uh, different ways of like combining, averaging those grades together for a final score. So on Thursdays, we got Tell the Truth Monday in the Pete Carroll era, Lombardi Packer Thursdays, he would they would hand out awards for the best grades on the team. And it was kind of like a little internal competition to be getting the best grades. And it made me start thinking like, it is kind of a long time, Sunday to Thursday. Uh, but uh, so the Seahawks game against the 49ers, there were, the Seahawks had 56 offensive snaps, 66 defensive snaps and 29 special team snaps for 151 snaps in total. So to grade all that out, that's 1,661 different grades. <laughs> That's a lot of grades. Just, just looking at that number made me feel better about like at the end of a game, I'll kind of be like, well, I, I have no idea how the safety did in this game or how the, you know, how the, the right guard did in this game. And that made me feel better to think there's on one team, just one team, that's one, one side of the ball is 1,661 grades. Back then when they're working with a, you know, a literal film on a, canister i have no idea how you would uh get to that by thursday we talked early in the year about how uh you kind of wonder sometimes could the coaches be away from the facility a little bit more and that's making me going this is making me go how do the coaches ever get sleep you got to know how your guys are doing you know you're paying a lot of money to these guys somebody has to evaluate them and to evaluate them all would be 1661 different grades in one game yeah, and that that does beg the question, how many graders do you have? Like like is it one of those deals defensive line you do your grade, you know, everyone does their own grade, but then if everyone's doing their own grade, is it is it consistent, you know? Like yeah. do you have a consistent grade so you actually know that your data is is really really good or like would a coach ever give someone the benefit of a doubt on a grade? It's it's really interesting. I wonder NFL teams must grade themselves now and then they probably go to pro football focus or whatever and do a little reference to be like, all right, are we jiving with their grade? Like, did, did we see the same thing, I guess? Because it, it, it would be nice to have a third party. Well, how, I mean, you kind of think like, wow, NFL teams subscribe to pro football focus, really? Like for the, they have huge, you know, many thousand dollar packages for the team. And it's like, yeah, I mean, you can evaluate free agents and stuff, but when do you have the time? You got six, 1,600 grades on your own team. How do you, how, when do you have time to identify, you know, the backup lineman on, on the Colts that you're going to spend $3 million on, you know, like there's just, this is, that was a moment where I was going like, man, the, the workload is, is crazy. Yeah, no, the, the dedication's insane um, for a lot of jobs, but yeah, it's, it's a, it's an obsession level job. Um Miles, this is, I think, this might be our longest podcast in podcast history. I think we, we're blowing it out of the water. Um, I'm already getting messages from people that haven't listened to this yet. But again, the, the space-time continuum is, is a little off here. Um, and uh, obviously, folks are really happy about it. We should sign off, though, and we should 
finish by talking really quickly about the 49ers game. You, you, you're hinting at it. We got a big time game coming up. Um, now that I've talked myself into a lather, I feel as though we're going to run through a wall. We're going to win this game. We're going to win the Ravens or, uh, the Eagles game. And, um, you know, the, the, the future is bright. I feel great. Um, I'm not going to give a prediction on this one. I'm just not going to do it, but I think we're going to win and go Hawks. What do you think? What's, what's your vibe going into the old Niners game? Look, I'm in a lather too. And I do think the Seahawks next week would beat just about any team in the NFL. I saw a stat on the internet today from Niners nation that stopped me in my tracks. Cause I we're going up against the juggernaut here again. There have been 16 total games when Brock Purdy, Debo Samuel, and Christian McCaffrey have finished the game healthy. That's it. 16 games. The 49ers are 16-0 in those games, and they've outscored their opponents 529-239. to So you're saying that we should slip one of those guys a laxative before the game. (laughs) Nothing that will hurt them, but just kind of, you know, hey, man, sorry, I can't get off the toilet. And then then we win. (laughs) Then we'll be fine. Maybe we change. Maybe we uh, move the clocks forward or something or like, you know, so that they're like an hour late, you know, to the game. And we get a few points on the board in the first quarter. Harmless pranks. Harmless pranks. I'm not looking to hurt anybody. Yeah. All right. All right. 529 to 239. I looked at the 2007 Patriots who also went 16 and 0. They were 589 to 274. So a little more points on either side. These are the first 16 games of Brock Purdy's career. I mean, he's just getting started. Like, this is the start of it. I also look, this is a kind of a side thing. Brock Purdy is two months older than Bo Nix and five months older than Michael Penix. I, you can't be nominated for the Heisman when you're way older than everybody else. These are 18 and 19-year-olds. You're like 24. Yeah, you should be the best player. That's just a side, that's just a side note there. I know college football had bigger fish to fry this week, uh, I guess. But, I mean, man. Do you think Brock Purdy is going to win the Heisman? Now, that would be some breaking news. Brock <laughs> Purdy, because he's about the same age as these other dudes, yeah, give him the Heisman. He's He deserves it as well. That'd be really funny. I think I think he deserves it a little more. In I fact. Mean, so, he's played harder competition. So, unfortunately, I do think it's going to be another, like, uh, I, I think it's I think it's going to be another high-scoring game. I, I do think the Hawks are going to – I think there's going to be, like, a one-possession 38-31 type game. Uh, that the Niners win. But I, I do think the Niners are just an abs- I, they Oh, their three losses. I didn't quite realize this, but their three-game losing streak, Debo Samuel was injured at the beginning of that first game. So I, so I, I think they're a hidden giant. I, I think they could be one of the, the truly great NFL teams of all time. And I do think it's going to be Niners against either the Cowboys or the Ravens in the Super Bowl. Niners play the Ravens on Christmas Day. Hello. Um, that'll be crazy. It's a Monday night. And, uh, I, d- I do think we might be seeing one of the great teams in NFL history. I really do because the, the, they destroyed the Eagles. That was wild. Yeah, they are. They are very, it doesn't just happened to the Seahawks, you know? Yeah. hundred percent. No, they're, they're very good. You, to your point, they're a different team when Debo is healthy. I think that's very true. Certainly they're a different team when, Mc, when, uh, McCaffrey's healthy, um, and I will not sit here and, you know, I, I want all of those young men to continue to be healthy and live good, prosperous lives. But 
I'm, I am thinking of the scene from Dumb and Dumber when um, when when he slips some colon blow into the the you know Lloyd's tea, and so yeah, I mean if um, if if for whatever reason you know one of these guys just had to spend more time on the toilet that day, and they you know missed a quarter or two, um, you know I, I wouldn't. Well, no, I wouldn't do that either. It's not. It's not right, Miles. Let's just let's just win the right way. What about the clock? What about the clock thing? I do like the idea of him coming to the stadium. <laughs> just and it's like really quiet, but the, there's all the cars there. He's walking through the full quiet parking lot, like huh, like oh shoot, and oh, then no, like running oh, to no. the locker and changing really quick. And it's the middle of the first quarter. Hawks are up twenty-one nothing because there was nobody on the field because there's just no defense or no no offense. Yeah, I mean, look, listen. I wouldn't hate it. I would not hate that to happen. Um, but you know what? We'll see what happens. Um, I'm, I'm sticking with the old Hawks on my prediction. I'm just not going to say a number because I don't have the heart for it. But go Hawks. Um, and there is, I guess, something to be said for like, I, I, I like your point. This is a historic team. The 49ers are very, very good. This is one of those special teams. I have no idea how they did it. They trade away all of their draft picks, and yet they seem to have like unlimited good players. Um, they're deep in every single position. I think that's the big takeaway when you watch the 49ers. There's, they don't have a weak position. There's not a spot where you're like, ah, well, we'll attack them there. Um, but yeah, let's go. Let's go, Miles. We can do this. DK's with us. DK is with us. And I think this is the halfway point of our show today. I think we're going to take a brief intermission and get back to the second half. Is that right? Or That's right. Yeah. And coming up, we're going to talk about Christmas canning. So we're going into the time of year where it's nice to have snacks that you can give your neighbors. But a lot of times, you know, it's, it's 2023. Everyone has Amazon. How do you know what a good, thoughtful gift is? Well, have you ever considered canning your own preserves. Coming up, Miles and I will talk to you about uh, preserve canning and just kind of what that could look like for your holiday traditions. Um, so yeah, if you're good with that, Miles, that's that's what I plan on coming back on and do it. Perfect. We'll get, we'll get to the ad read and come back and do it. Great. We'll talk to you guys later. Go Hawks.